Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of the Word of God and open up to Second Chronicles and chapter 28. This evening we are looking together at verses 1 through 15 of this chapter. And as we come to a new king, I'm sorry to say it will be the same sad story that we continue to see of various men not loving God as they should, and yet these words are written that we may hear Note it carefully and learn from it. Let us ask the Lord's help before we read His Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come needing the help of Your Holy Spirit to understand Your eternal truth. Lord, we pray that You would grant to us that spiritual discernment. Would You give us ears that hear and hearts that receive Your Word? Would Your Word be sweet to our taste, sweeter than the honeycomb? Would you cause your word to dwell richly in our hearts as it's proclaimed in our hearing? For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Second Chronicles 28, 1-15. This is God's word. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel." And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Therefore, the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force for Pekah the son of Remaliah killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Maaseah the king's son, and Azrechim, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah the next in authority to the king. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters, They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah the son of Johanan, Barakiah the son of Meshilimoth, Jehizkiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives in here. 
For you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives, and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may He bless His word to us tonight. When the previous reigns of two kings that we have just seen, Uzziah's 52 years, which due to his leprosy, remember, overlap with his son Jotham's 16 years, during this time, the kingdom of Judah had experienced a growing power, we might say. Uzziah's fame had spread as far as the border of Egypt, that is, before his prideful folly. And borders are expanding, the tributes of nations are being offered, enemies are being defeated. And the previous chapters have made it abundantly clear that these were the results of God's blessing. But that blessing fell while other providential factors took place in the larger Mesopotamian world. You see, in the 8th century BC, the time which we're discussing here, Assyria to the east had a period of decline. But the weakness of Assyria came to an abrupt end when a king named Tiglath-Pileser III, also known as Pol, seized the Assyrian throne around 744 B.C. Now this is towards the end of Uzziah's life and in the middle of Jotham's co-regency with his father. Now as we saw last week during the latter days of Uzziah when Jotham is running Judah, the people of Judah were sold out to their corrupt practices. Idolatry was pervasive, which is a provoking activity, and it arouses the jealousy of Yahweh. So there's a building problem of evil in the land. And then we meet Ahaz, the worst king Judah has ever known to this point. And all of that sounds very ominous. Was at this moment that Tiglath-Pileser begins his military campaigns westward into the regions of Israel and Judah. And we might think of Assyria as a mighty flood threatening to overtake the kingdoms of the region, including those of God's covenant people because of their sin. So with this brewing monster on the horizon, with evil acts in Judah stirring God's wrath, what is going to become of God's people? Well, I think we all see that judgment here is inevitable. And yet we shall also see, though wickedness abounds in the land and specifically comes from the king, in wrath, God will yet remember mercy. I want you to note three things as we make our way through our text. First, see with me pervasive evil in verses 1 to 4. Pervasive evil. Now, while Jotham, Ahaz's father, became mighty, we read in chapter 27, verse 6, because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. That is, he established his ways to please the Lord. 
Jotham knew he was in covenant with the Lord and he determined to walk with the Lord in relationship. Yet Ahaz is the antithesis to his father. During his 16 years of sovereignty in Judah, we read verse 1, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The ideal king of David was far from his mind. He didn't even care to imitate his father. Now, this matter is worth noting. Something we've seen in the past with Eli's sons and Samuel's sons and David's sons. You can have godly models set before you. You can be instructed in the things of the Lord and then you can still rush headlong into sin. The faithfulness found in parents cannot convey grace to their children. Or as Matthew Henry famously puts it, grace doesn't run in the blood. Every man, woman, boy, or girl must seek the Lord for him or herself. They must be humbled to know God, to love God, to recognize their sin, and turn to a God of great mercy. Well, that's a message the Chronicler's audience, no doubt, wants to press upon his hearers and one we need to hear too. You may have had those like Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah who were godly models, but that doesn't mean you're going to be godly. You must pursue the Lord. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Fear the God who is good. Well, Ahaz doesn't hear that kind of message or he's not concerned for that at all. He's not interested in the fear of God. He scoffs at the knowledge of the Lord and he takes what we might call a nosedive into pervasive evil. It's not just that he didn't do what David did, but, verse 2, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, at least two kings in Judah had done that in the relatively recent past. Jehoshaphat's son and grandson, Jehoram and Ahaziah. They were caught up, you remember, in Jehoshaphat's intermarriage mess with Ahab's house. And what happened to those two kings? Well, one of them, Jehoram, died in agony with his bowels coming out after only eight years on the throne. And then Ahaziah was assassinated in judgment after only one year on the throne. And I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem like following the practices of Israel is a good idea, practically speaking. But obviously, the reason it's foolish and the reason it's deadly is because the idolatry of the northern kingdom incurs the wrath of God, namely bringing covenant curses down upon you. Well, Ahaz doesn't seem to care. He's not thinking of the covenant curses of God. In fact, it wasn't enough for him to pursue the evil of the kings of Israel. Note how the text emphasizes the deeper pursuit of sin. Middle of verse 2, he even made metal images for the Baals. That is, he abandoned the worship of Yahweh alone at the temple and he promoted Baal worship with various images of calves throughout the land. But that's not all. Verse 3, And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now it's not entirely clear which pagan gods were worshipped in this valley which is to the south of the temple mount in Jerusalem. But it's the garbage dump of the city where fires continually burned to consume dead animals and garbage, an image Jesus will later use of hell. Here, 
all kinds of sacrifices to all kinds of false gods were made. But there was a particular kind of sacrifice, likely associated with Chemosh, the god of Moab, that is taking place here. Because it's not enough that Ahaz is making sacrifices to various gods. We also read, and he burned his sons. Note the plural there. He burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the kings whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel. Now there's an account in 2 Kings chapter 3 of a Moabite king in an emergency crying out to his god Chemosh. The king is trapped by Israel's army and in his deep crisis to show the earnestness of his appeal to Chemosh, to manipulate Chemosh, to do something for him, much like the prophets of Baal were cutting themselves and letting the blood flow to manipulate Baal to do something. Well, that king of Moab sacrificed his son. And it appeared to work because the king was able to escape. I think something similar is likely occurring here with Ahaz. Pressures are mounting with Assyria threatening and with a coalition of forces from Syria and also Israel and a few other peoples uniting to try to fight against Assyria. The nations are trying to get Ahaz to stand with them against the big big, bad bully Assyria. And when he refuses to do it, the kings of Syria and Israel threaten him. They are soon to attack as we shall see. So things are really tense. There's a lot of pressure weighing down on Ahaz. But rather than turning to the Lord in his emergencies and discovering, as Uzziah did, that God will marvelously help, rather than finding out, as David once wrote, that Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed, Ahaz instead slaughters his sons, calling on Chemosh. Ahaz becomes, as one has put it, a desperate polytheist in the hopes that some God may deliver him from his trouble. What evil. And what makes it worse here is, as the chronicler spells out, these are the types of abominations committed by the Canaanites whom the Lord drove out before Israel. That is a very ominous statement. If Yahweh saw the wickedness of the Canaanites and drove them out of the land and crushed them, what do you think is going to happen to Ahaz and his people if they follow these practices? He's going to drive them out. That doesn't seem to matter to him. Indeed, the sacrifices of his sons isn't enough. Look at verse 4. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This truly portrays the depth of his desperation. He's making sacrifices to every god he can think of, seeking every possible avenue for favor, except, of course, in the one place you can get favor, with the Lord. And the sad irony here is Ahaz turns to the things that will condemn his soul and cause destruction to the land for relief. We might call Ahaz a religious pragmatist. He's not interested in what is true. He's interested in what he thinks will help or what makes him feel like help will come. 
Now, brethren, how in the world does this egregious king and his evil relate to us? Well, first, I want you to look at the depths of evil that will emerge when someone abandons the covenant Lord. Such a person is given over to all manner of confusion and wickedness, serial idolatry, burning your children, and all of it makes you ripe for wrath. Well, this should make us beware of thinking that a little drifting, a little bit of sin, won't lead to much sin. We can often think that if we just sin a little bit, it's not going to get worse. No, it may well get worse. That's why you are to not let sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey its lust. Don't give any quarter to sin ever. For you see, those who don't purpose to follow the Lord will often be sunk in our own modern version of the sexual free-for-all that was Baal worship. People given over to various sexual perversions or seeking of prosperity. Baal is the prosperity God after all. And this cult of satisfaction, making myself feel better with pleasure to help my heart circumstances, what does it often produce? It produces a further pursuit in pragmatism of killing the children conceived in lust. Now in our land, that doesn't involve traveling, traveling to the garbage dump of the city and actually burning your children in the fire. Now we have much more sterile, and sophisticated practices of child sacrifice with the veneer of clean medical intervention with those even clamoring that this is a right. But make no mistake, these practices are just as abominable as they ever were. When people think a little bit of pleasure or a little bit of money or a little bit of elimination of what stands in my way of being happy and thriving as I determine it, like maybe the caring for a child. When these people think those things will help them in life, they are showing the same religious pragmatism. We might call it the same religious lunacy as Ahaz. Now most of us tonight wouldn't dare think we would go that far in the pursuit of sin. But I tell you, brethren, giving space in your heart for something other than the true God can lead you down roads you never thought you would go. Just remember, Judas, no man can serve two masters, as Jesus said. Who is your master? Is there a seeking of the Lord? Is there an acknowledgement that He alone is your helper? Is there a determination to walk by His law? Or will you craft... A do-it-yourself religion. Turning to your own ways. Deciding for yourself if God's Word is acceptable to you and you'll do whatever you want rather than grasping Christ and clinging to His commandments as a sheep hearing the shepherd's voice. What will rule your life? What a scarred against giving any room to idols of the heart or trusting your own heart as the God you should follow. Secondly, see with me. Not only a pervasive evil, but now punishing defeat. Punishing defeat. We know on the basis of God's law, His outlining of covenant curses for disobedience, trouble is brewing for Ahaz and Judah. 
How can it not be in view of all of this sin? And see the logical connection, verse 5. Therefore, that is in light of all this pervasive evil, the Lord gave him, that is the king Ahaz, into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captives a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. This is only the beginning of trouble. But two things I want to highlight here. First, did you notice that Ahaz is spoken of as a man in covenant with God? Therefore, Yahweh, His God, gave him into the hand of the king of Syria. I find that striking. Ahaz is a serial idolater. He's a man who vehemently rejects the covenant God with all of his evil. But he's still a person in covenant with God. He's still... An Israelite, he's still in the line of David. He still has received the covenant of circumcision. He's a man who has the law. Yes, he's acting like a pagan, but he isn't a raw pagan. And therefore, he will not be punished with general judgments that are given to the Gentiles. He will be punished with covenant curses as one with more light. That should be noted by us because the author of Hebrews will lay out the same logic to us in the New Covenant. If we who are part of the covenant people have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and yet if we abandon the Lord, curses will fall and they will be even more severe. For in the new covenant, greater mercies have come to us in the giving of Jesus Christ. And if we have heard of Jesus, if we've received the knowledge of the truth in Jesus and then reject it, going on in the pursuit of sin, there remains, as the author of Hebrews puts it, Nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, I know that that is not a pleasant message. But God's people need to be warned of the horrors that come when they drift, when they grow lukewarm, when they start loving the world more than loving God and His Word. Jesus gives these kinds of chilling warnings to covenant people in Revelation 2 and 3. It's like the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. You have a reputation of being alive. That is, you have a name that you are my people, but you are dead. Wake up and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief against you. In other words, punishments or curses will fall. Well, that's exactly what's unfolding here in our text. If you receive the knowledge of the Lord, but reject the Lord and will not give Him your service, if you run after other lovers, then the God whose name is Jealous will strike. Do we think that God is only kidding when He warns us of the punishment of the disobedient? Do we think that God is like an earthly father who only threatens, who counts to three as slowly as possible and then will never do anything? Do we think that because God is slow to anger that He will just stand by and allow us to blaspheme His name and dishonor His Son? Well, but do you see clearly here the connection between loving sin and being struck with judgment? Don't take sin lightly. There's a second thing to note as the Lord gave Ahaz into the hand of the king of Syria. Catch the language of what happened. The king of Syria defeated Ahaz and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. That's an exile in, in miniature, which we've seen before in this book. 
And do you see how the chronicler is telling his audience, who are on the other side of the exile, your, father, your father's had all these warnings. God was truly slow to anger. He punished them in various ways with a light exile that they might turn to Him, that they might repent, but they didn't turn. Therefore, even more severe judgment came. And surely the lesson is, don't repeat the folly of your fathers. Don't think if you do what they did that you're going to get away with it. You will not escape. We're supposed to learn the same lesson. Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. He tells us of the Israelite generation that Moses led out of Israel and how they fell dead in the wilderness because of their disobedience and unbelief. And Paul writes this, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't desire evil. You knew that before you walked in the door tonight. But brethren, there has to be an inclination to go towards the Lord and reject evil. Is that persisting in your heart? Now the severity of this judgment is spelled out here in our text in two parts. First, serious king attacks and takes captive. And then in verses 5b to 8, Israel's king, Pekah, strikes with great force. Such was the blow, we read in verse 6, that 120,000 were killed from Judah in one day. That is three times the amount of U.S. soldiers killed in the entire Normandy invasion in World War II. Why so severe? Verse 6, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Among the dead are high-ranking officials, this man from Ephraim, Zikri, killed Maaseiah, the king's son. Azrikam, the, the commander of the king's palace. Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. It counters the oft-believed notion that the high and mighty will escape judgment. Well, they might in this world, but not when the Lord Himself is coming against them. But then that judgment reaches to the common people. Verse 8, 200,000 taken captive, women, sons and daughters, along with spoil, and they're dragged to Samaria. Obviously, this is more exile in miniature language. And it's chilling. Because while Israel attacked and defeated Judah before, never had Judah suffered a defeat to this degree. Now, amidst all this wrath, there is mercy, which we're about to get a glimpse of in the next section. But even right here, I want to point out to you the depth of God, God's mercy, which Isaiah chapter 7 highlights. And I want you to turn over there. It's a famous Christmas text with connections of a virgin birth, you might remember. Isaiah chapter 7. In that section, we read of Rezin, who's the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, they're attacking Judah and killing chief officials, but they still don't take the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah 7 says these kings came with the expressed intention of ousting Ahaz from the throne and replacing him with a puppet king who would join with him in the fight against Assyria. You see that in verse 6 of Isaiah 7. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Well, at this point, they haven't been successful. So in this moment, the prophet Isaiah goes to meet Ahaz, 
the wickedest king in Judah thus far, the man who worships every god but Yahweh. And yet Yahweh has a word of hope for this king. Ahaz is shaking in his boots over this attack marshaled against his people. So Isaiah meets him at the water source for Jerusalem, probably the very spot the enemies will attack. And Isaiah says, chapter 7, verse 4, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. In other words, Isaiah is telling Ahaz, don't try to come up with your own pragmatic solutions here to your problems. Look to the Lord. Trust Him and don't tremble. That's an amazing offer of mercy to this rotten sinner who's burned his own children in the fire. Do you not see that our God is willing to receive any who would repent and trust Him? Isaiah spells out how the plot of these kings will fail. And then there's an appeal. into verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, put your faith in the Lord, rest in Him, or you're finished. Again, it's the staggering appeal of mercy to Ahaz. But then there's more. Isaiah tells this king Ahaz, verse 11, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And we all know asking for signs from God is dangerous business. Jesus says that's the kind of thing an adulterous and sinful generation does because it's acting as though God needs to prove Himself to us. But it's not Ahaz who's asking. It's the Lord commanding Ahaz to ask for a sign. Yahweh knows the great weakness in this king. And the Lord is willing to prove Himself to Ahaz that He reigns over all. Well, what happens? Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. Look at what he says in verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds very pious, doesn't it? He quotes Deuteronomy 6, as Jesus Himself will quote when He is tried by the evil one. But He's cloaking His piety and disobedience. He's saying, Lord, I'm going to keep Your Word and not test You while He is disobeying what God is telling Him to do. What does it all mean? It means even when there's an offer of mercy to Ahaz, he refuses it. He won't believe. He will not cling to the Word of God. Well, the Lord gives him a sign anyway, though it won't be a near sign. He says, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In other words, God's plan of grace won't stop because you're being a bonehead, Ahaz. God will continue his purposes. If you won't rest in the Lord, that won't be the end of all grace from God, but Ahaz, you'll never experience it. Again, there is mercy shown in the midst of God's wrath. Ahaz just chooses to reject God's mercy. Brother, what about us? Will we reject the greatest offer of mercy that's ever been made? Salvation, forgiveness, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we want to love our sin and go our way. Will we heap wrath upon ourselves because we determined to say with a famous singer, I did it my way. Let it not be this. Let it not be so. Finally, see with me a picture of hope. I want you to try to imagine back in our text, 2 Chronicles 28, a depressing picture of women, sons, and daughters, 200,000 of them, led captive to Samaria. 
The ordinary practice was to strip the prisoners naked, to attach them to a chain, and to lead them out in humiliation. They would thus be enslaved by their conquerors. And the disobedient in Judah deserve that and worse. It's not just that they have a wicked king. They have forsaken the Lord. Nevertheless, in wrath, God remembers mercy. Verse 9, But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded, and he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria. Now over a hundred years before this incident, Elijah had thought, there are not any faithful left in Israel. You remember what the Lord said to him, there are yet 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But despite Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry, things only got worse. In fact, our text is talking about a time 20 years past when Amos condemned Israel and during the time when Hosea is condemning Israel. And one might think Israel, the northern kingdom, where they've never had a good king and they're mired in idolatry, one might think there will be no hope for these people. But lo and behold, there's a prophet among them. Oded. There's a people so corrupt. God had said to a previous king, he's not with Israel. And yet God is still speaking to them. It's a little reminder that God always preserves a remnant. He will have His people. Even in the midst of great evil, the light of His Word and His people will not go out. Well, here Oded has a particular message to the army toting these prisoners from Judah into the city. He says, Yahweh was angry with Judah. That's why you won. Yahweh gave them over to you. However, verse 9, you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. It's one thing to have victory. It's another thing to brutalize your enemies. And evidently, that's what Israel did. Not only that, verse 10, now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Now, enslaving fellow Hebrews was forbidden by the law of Moses. Israel may act like that doesn't matter. God says it it very much matters. And I will confront you over it. Indeed, what's interesting here is the Lord is taking notice not just of what is happening, but what they intend to do. They are confronted about their evil plans. Our God isn't just concerned for our actions. He's concerned for our motives and our inclinations. He knows when our hearts desire what is forbidden, and that is sin, and it needs to be confronted. Oded tells these men, You already have enough sin against the Lord. This is only going to add to your guilt. And he says, now hear me. Send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. And the picture is here, thousands of Israelite warriors probably already dividing up the slaves to send them home and to have free labor. And I don't think they immediately respond to the prophet. But then there are four chiefs, men of Ephraim, who take to heart God's Word. And they stand up. Verse 12, end of the verse. They stood up against those who were coming in from the war. They said, you will not bring those captives in. You're bringing further guilt on us. They acknowledge our guilt is already great and there's fierce wrath against Israel. Clearly there's some conviction in these four men. We don't know what becomes of them, but they take to heart the Word of God and they make sure the Word of God is followed. What a blessing it is to have leaders who have ears attuned to the voice of God and who are not interested in arousing the wrath of God, so they stand for righteousness. We desperately need that in the church. Men who will be courageous 
for the things of God. Well, due to the fearful or fearsome words of these men from Ephraim, the armed men, verse 14, left the captives in the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. They listened. They ceased the great evil. But then perhaps an indication of true conversion. Verse 15, the men who were mentioned by name rose and took the captives and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. Not only that, they gave them sandals, food and drink, anointed them, probably attending to their wounds, put them on donkeys, carried them back to Jericho, a border town between Israel and Judah. Interestingly, many have argued that Jesus uses this historical situation as a source for the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a man from Jerusalem attacked on the Jericho road, and he's helped by a Samaritan, like men from Samaria here. That Samaritan attends to the man's wounds. He does all that's needed to care for him. He puts him on his animal, probably a donkey, and takes him to an inn in Jericho. Clearly, the stories have similarity. Well, Jesus uses that story in Luke 10 in a shocking way to say even a Samaritan can demonstrate that he's justified by grace through faith because he loves as he should. Well, here I think the Chronicler is also showing us what is shocking. That even among the low-down, dirty, filthy idolaters in Israel, the very heart of Samaria, where these people have never had a good king and they always are doing what is wrong, still there are men gripped by the Word of God and men who are willing to love their neighbor as themselves. What's the message here? I think it's a simple one. Not all hope is lost. Here are these flagrant covenant breakers in Israel, and the Lord can change their hearts and stir repentance. He can call sinners to Himself. And if there's hope for the people in the northern kingdom, surely there's hope for the people in the southern kingdom. They only need to hear God's Word. This chastisement, this small exile, needs to lead them to repentance. And brethren, that is the chronicler's message to his audience as well. Receive the afflictions that God brings and turn to Him. See the way He shows love to you in spite of your sin. Just as the Lord caused men you wouldn't expect to show you concern, the Lord has caused the Persians to let you go back to Jerusalem, to let you rebuild the temple, to let you rebuild the walls and give you money for those things. Well, they're letting you serve the Lord, so repent. Don't spurn the kindness of God that He's shown you. Brother, may we receive this same message. God can save any sinner. All hope is not lost. He can change any heart. He can show His mercy to anyone. Are you ready to receive that mercy? Are you willing to accept the chastisements and the kindnesses of the Lord as a call to turn from your sin? Don't heap up wrath by refusing the mercy of God, by refusing to listen. Respond to Him. For Jesus Himself tells us, repent or perish. Of course, there's motivation to repent because the Lord will receive any man who turns from His wicked way and He will abundantly pardon and He will show incredible compassion. Don't be as Ahaz who refuses the mercy of God. Rather like these four Ephraimite chiefs, follow God's leading 
and respond to His Word. May the Lord make our hearts responsive. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, You have demonstrated the depth of Your love to Your people in not only speaking to us, but sending Your Son for us. And Lord, we pray that we would not harden our heart against You and Your kindness. We pray that we would not harden our heart when You chastise us, but rather we would turn from our evil ways. Lord, our God, we pray that Your Spirit would stir us to resist sin. Let us not plunge ourselves into deeper and deeper ruin. Lord, we pray that we would not go our own way, but Your way. Father, You must work this grace in our souls. And would there be not a one of us here tonight who would perish in unbelief. Rather, we pray that we would turn to You and see the love that You show Your people in Your crucified Son. For we pray it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.